The number one emotion that triggers poor financial decisions is fear. Welcome to Hardly Working, a podcast about how we can improve work, life, and everything in between. These are recordings from live conversations on Fishbowl, a social network where professionals of the same industry have anonymous career conversations. You can join us live next time on the Fishbowl app. We have events every day. All right, let's get right into it. So hi, everyone. Thanks for joining. Welcome to this evening's Fishbowl Live with Jesse Blount III, Senior Vice President and Wealth Advisor at Morgan Stanley. Uh, Jesse, you've been there for 36 years, right? Yeah, I'm going into 37 years in December. Yes. Congratulations. Well, last time we spoke, you had over 700 people come to hear you speak. So it's awesome that we've been able to get you back again. Thank you so much for your time. As ever, finance is always a super highly requested topic, but this one is a little bit different. So if any of you have heard Jesse speak before, you'll have learned how to set financial goals and how to make good investment choices. But today we're going to be talking about the psychology of money, which if you, if you heard Jesse speak just a moment ago, is really relevant given the geopolitics that's going on right now. And just understanding what our relationship with money is, how money habits affect our daily decisions, and how can we change the way we think, feel, and act about money. So if any of you guys want to come up and chat to Jesse, you can use the button at the bottom right of the screen, and I'll pull you up to the stage and you can ask your question. If you guys don't want to do that, feel free to shoot me a DM and I will read it out for you. So great, Jesse, why don't you give us a quick introduction and then uh, let, let's pick up with, with what you were saying about the war at the moment and the calls that you're getting from clients and just what are some people's concerns at the moment? Thank you again, uh, Jay and Rachel, for the opportunity uh, to be here tonight. This is the part of my career that I really enjoy the most. I have worked Morgan Stanley for over 36 years. My name is Jesse Blount, and I am a senior vice president and a wealth advisor at the firm. And uh, I really enjoy my job, but the part I think is most fun is to help people meet their goals. And there are many different ways to doing that. Tonight's topic has to do with the psychology of money. It's really funny because when people become financial advisors, more often than not, we are taught to help you grow your wealth. But never are we taught to sit down with a client who's lost his wife for 30 years and watch him come to pieces. There's some psychology of being able to do that or to listen to a person who's concerned about the war or that the next president and to have them be patient through choppy market. There's some psychology that is associated with investing your money so that at your end days, you know that your family is going to be taken care of. But while you're still living, you also know they're going to be taken care of so that you are okay. And that's the part that's unseen, which is why I enjoy this particular presentation. Awesome. So let's start this off by asking, where does our relationship with money come from, Jesse? Is it primarily our parents? How much weight does nurture carry when it comes to this relationship? Well, one might think that your relationship with money does come from your parents. And in many cases, it, it does for the better or for the worse. There are parents that uh, might be very well off and their kids might be thinking easy street. Maybe they don't swim so hard. And then there are other parents that maybe they work really hard and their kids grow up saying, look, I saw how hard mom and dad work. I'm going to save my money. I'm going to make something with myself. But there is nothing that says that a person that comes up in an affluent family, that that child is going to have the same work ethic as their parents who got them there. So you might be motivated to grow your wealth as a young person because your parents are doing very well. Or you might be demotivated because you might say to yourself, hey, you know what? When the second one passes away, I'm going to inherit a lot of money. And being here at this job in my position, I know that it affects people on many different ways. Some people are self-driven, your relationship with money, and they want to do things on their own. And they're not trying to inherit anything. They are self-made. And so your relationship with money um, can come from many different areas, not the least of which is your desire to avoid anxiety. And we'll talk about that later in our presentation. Okay, great. So what are some of the misconceptions people have about money? For speaking from experience, when I was younger, I used to think that 
having money was inherently bad or it made you out of touch with your community. And that's something I really had to go back and, and unlearn. So well, what would you say some of the misconceptions are? <laughs> Sorry for laughing. There are plenty that come out there. And I think the first one that comes off is that people who have a lot of money are actually nice people. And that's not automatically the case. And I've always been more attracted to people who are kind and giving than people who take a lot. But many times the people who take a lot and don't give anything have the most wealth. Maybe that's how they made their wealth. So it really is interesting when you look at, you know, how people actually feel when it comes to money and what their beliefs are and what their attitudes are, their education, and do they want to give back? I'm not here to, to say that somebody should or should not do something with their money. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that it's not a coincidence that the people who seem to give more to the community seem to feel, or at least they appear to be more rich with their quality of life. I don't think anyone would say that Mother Teresa was a billionaire, but with love, she sure was probably the richest person in the world. Yeah, I like that analogy. That's great. Can you share with us then some of the, the most common financial worries people have? Is it college, healthcare? What do you see? So one of the things that we've said, you know, over our presentation continues into it will it will be forever that everybody is different. So when it comes to what your goals are, be it education or your career or major purchase or the length of your retirement, everybody is different. And, and so, you know, I think that people's challenges start with not having a plan. And when I mean a plan, I mean something that you can quantify how much you're going to need to meet a specific goal and to be able to tie a specific account to that goal. In other words, if I want to retire, I want to retire and I want to generate a certain amount of money every year. What account? Well, I'm going to tie my 401k, maybe my IRA. And if I have a social security income, those might be my three major pools of income for my retirement. So I want to probably the biggest problems that people have is they fail to quantify how much realistically they're going to need for any given expense. When I mean realistic, you got to take consideration inflation. It's a big topic right now. So if you think about it, whatever your expense is today, plus 7% might be how much it costs next year. Jesse, that's a great point while we're on this topic. Could you just explain briefly for those who may not know, what is going on with inflation at the moment? I thought you wanted this to be fun. <laughs> <laughs> just briefly. <laughs> I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news when it comes to inflation, but for those of you that don't know, inflation is the devaluation of your dollar. Your purchasing power goes down it costs you more money to do the same thing. That's what inflation is. So it's most commonly looked at at the gas pump, except for those that have electric cars, but it is reflected in many different other areas. In other words, if you said, how does the price of gas affect the price of salmon at my restaurant? Well, the boats are run on diesel and their costs are going higher, so my salmon costs are going higher. So it goes all the way through. It would include heating oil. From what I hear on the East Coast, sometimes it gets a little bit cold. I don't know. I'm in, I'm in San Jose, California. But every now and then I hear it gets cold on the East Side. And so your heating bills probably go up. But that bill goes up because the heating oil is increased because of inflation. And so you have to take that into consideration when you're making this plan. I keep talking to you about planning. If you're going to plan for your retirement or you're going to plan for an educational expense, or if you're going to plan for a, a major purchase, these sort of things, you need to take inflation into consideration. If you're going to buy a house today, most likely it will be less expensive today than it will be in one year. That's great. Thanks, Jesse. And uh, it gets cold over in London for the record as well. So <laughs> my gas prices aren't doing too good. For anyone who has just joined us, we're chatting with Jesse Blount III, Senior Vice President and Wealth Advisor at Morgan Stanley. Jesse's talking to us about the psychology of money. And if you'd like to ask him a question, you can let me know by pressing the button on the bottom right hand corner of the screen and I'll pull you up onto the stage. 
So Jesse, you say that there are five personality types when it comes to money. Can you share a bit about each of those? I will tell you again, I work at Morgan Stanley, so I didn't put this slide together, but I am sure there are more than just five financial personality traits, right? Of course, people spend money. Oftentimes they work, they spend it, they work, they spend it. Those people you could say live check to check. And then other people like to save their money and that's great. And uh, that helps them change their lives or for those that they love. I've got clients that love to shop. And if you're doing a budget or a financial plan, then you should include that in your budget. I don't necessarily shop, but I do play golf. So I have to include my green fees. But my girlfriend loves to shop. So she's got a little thing to Nordstrom's, right? So, you know, you just have to budget. And, and if you budget, then shoppers are fine. Debtors, they don't take a lot of time thinking about their money and they spend more than they earn. And unfortunately, and oftentimes that comes first from people that come out of college. They don't even know what a credit card is because their parents never told them what a credit card was. Like you need to pay back the credit that you just rang up. But you have to realize that some people just don't really care and they ring themselves up into a lot of debt. I want to say one thing clearly about debt. There is good debt and there is bad debt. Okay. If you have a mortgage, that would be considered good debt. In most cases, you get to deduct that money, your more primary mortgage expense from your taxes. So that would be considered good debt. And I think that if you have a student loan, I think that's good debt too. In my mind, you're betting on yourself and you got to bet on you. If you don't believe in you, nobody else will. So I'm down with that. Okay. But I'm not fond of credit card debt. I really am not. I am not when it's 24, 25, 27% and you have multiple credit cards, right? I'm not fond of that. And then I'm not really fond if you can avoid borrowing against your 401k. I'd like not do that. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. And therefore there's good debt and bad debt. We need to live our lives uh, accordingly. And then finally investors, and those are people who are aware of their money. They, they try to put it to work. They'll invest their money in companies that you and I all know and have heard of, those that make phones with the fruit on the back of them, or those that make massive software or companies where you can buy things online very easily, or big retail warehouses where you can go and they're packed, those types of companies. Even the ones like uh, where you fix your house up, those types of companies, or the guy that wears that brown suit and comes to your house and delivers things from the company that you can get stuff very easily online, okay? So those are investors and those people realize that if I put my money into those types of companies, that it's likely that uh, I will have more over the years than it was when I started. Mm. Which of those personalities do you identify most with, Jesse? It depends on who I'm speaking with because I do financial literacy for the Early Career Network at Cisco from time to time. I've done financial literacy at VMware. Um, I've done financial literacy at Comcast and Thomas Kincaid and the list goes on and on. When I am working with millennials or early career networks workers, oftentimes they're more concerned with being in debt because they generally have more debt. They're just getting started. Maybe they've got these student loans I was just telling you about. So I identify with my clients because I'm a human being. I read a statistic from a, a PwC report that says 38% of all employees have less than $1,000 saved. For plenty of different reasons, they might not listen to their Uncle Jesse who told them to save or try and save 9 to 12 months of their basic living expenses for emergencies. But moreover, I think reality. I mean, again, you know, not everybody is in a great position financially. I think people might have reached out to help family members. They might have reached out to pay their own bills or to, to continue to keep the roof over their heads. There are any number of reasons. There are a lot of reasons why people haven't, say, maybe they're just out of college. There are a lot of reasons, but in a perfect world, sure, you know, we would all have plenty of cash. But there's a saying in financial management, and I believe it should go like this. There's the way things should be, and then there's the way things are. And I think that we should invest money for our clients, or you should invest for yourself based on the way things are. Mm, for sure. So if someone has limited disposable income, they have some debt, but they could save or they could invest, which would you advise they do? I would advise doing a monthly budget for them yourself and figure out how much you make 
and don't lie to yourself. And then I would figure out, have you figure out how much do you spend net? And then I would have you, whatever you have left, if you make more than what you spend, then we would encourage you to um, try to save half of that and to pay down your debt at an accelerated half with the other half. Mm -hmm. The reason why you don't pay that debt off in its entirety as soon as possible is if you did that, you would have nothing safe. So if you had an emergency or anything came up, you wouldn't have any money. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that's great advice. So this is about relationships with money and the psychology of money. So one thing I wanted to ask is, unfortunately, almost half of all marriages end in divorce and financial stress is one of the main catalysts. Can you share any observations around this topic and how our audience can spot early warning signs so they can nip it in the bud? Yeah, I sure can. I've got really two good friends that you guys both know. One's named Rachel and the other's named Jane. And they have two documents, PDFs, that you can ask them to send to you. It's called The Guide to Life and Money. And you cannot buy anything in this booklet, nothing. You cannot buy a thing. It is informational 100%. That being said, there is an, a whole topic on tying the knot. And that's what I would do is I would look at that first. Because when you get married, you need to have or it would be great to be on the same page as the person that you're getting married to. Whether you jointly commingle money or you have it separately, you need to make sure that you're on the same page. You can have situations where you have kids from pre-existing marriages, and if one of you were to pass, then do you want those assets to go to your kids or to your spouse? Because you might live in a community property state. There are a lot of things that you want to make sure that you're clear on before you get married. And another topic in that chapter is one that has to do with premarital arrangements or premarital agreement, prenuptial agreements. The key to marital bliss or the ultimate buzz killer, right? But if you're the person that's coming into the uh, marriage with a lot of wealth, you really need to make sure that you protect that if you want to have it go to whom you want it to go to in the future. So that's very, very important. And you want to have clear communication with whomever it is that you're speaking with. And you want to know whether you live in a community property state. You want to educate yourself to know, is your income community property? Yeah, those are the things that you want to do. Because if you go into it blind or without having the clear answers to the questions I just gave you, then more likely than not, you could set yourself up for someone to take advantage of you. We all know somebody who married somebody else that was younger and the younger person was, quote unquote, a grave digger waiting for the other person to pass away, so to speak. Right. And the older person didn't have the right paperwork, trust, revocable living trust specifically. And the survivor inherited everything. It bypassed the kids. And um, it's not a gender thing. It just happened. So you, there are nefarious people out there and you need to protect yourself from them. What would you advise, Jesse? If you were unhappy with your partner's spending habits or perhaps you suspect that, you know, they did have nefarious intentions, how can someone approach a conversation like that? Start off by never saying these words. I don't worry about my money. I let my spouse handle it. Yeah. Never say that and mean it. <laughs> right? Because you should know what's going on. You should know what your spouse is doing. He or she shouldn't be signing you into debt or into contracts without your knowledge. And how would you know unless you open the envelope? Yeah, you open the envelope and give him the open envelope. It's a joint account, right? Don't you wanna know how much debt is on there? What charges are on your card? Wouldn't you wanna know that? This is common sense. This is how people get taken advantage of. So don't make yourself an easy target. One of the things, and hopefully you'll ask me this question about some of the things that happen to people that don't make great decisions, they will take advantage of others that aren't looking. So do not make yourself an easy target. That goes back to having a living trust and really understanding where your finances are. If you're married, then you want to know what's your value? What's your half of the estate? What is it? You'll sleep better at night. Yeah, awesome advice. And I'll just add on to the end of that. Just because somebody says they, they know what they're doing with their finances and, and they've got it covered, 
You don't necessarily have to trust them. You know, you can't quantify what your other half does or doesn't know about finance. So as Jessen said, definitely get involved. Definitely open the letters. Make make it a joint thing. And Sam, would you like to? Yeah. And my uh, basic question is, where do we access those resources that you talked about? Jade and Rachel, they've got them. Yeah, anyone who wants them, just drop myself or Rachel a DM with your email address and we'll get them sent out. It would be the guide to life and money. In there, there is definitely a section on tying the knot. Perfect. Okay, great. So we're going to move into how emotions affect money habits. So can you just talk to us a bit about those, Jesse, the key emotions that tend to trigger poor financial? The number one uh, emotion that triggers poor financial decisions is fear. I guess that links to what you were talking about earlier then with, with everything going on with Russia and Ukraine at the moment. What is some of the conversations you're having with clients? What, what type of fears? Do they- fears are consistent. That's the one thing about investing your money. The psychology of investing is that you would need to understand that excrement happens. It just takes different shapes and sizes. It can be an election. It can be a global pandemic. It can be inflation rates, interest rates. It can be a war. It can be a natural disaster. Stuff happens. And therefore, when it does, it causes anxiety. And that anxiety makes people make bad investment decisions. They might call their favorite financial advisor and tell us to sell everything because the stock market is down. Even though they have long-term investment goals, after the market might be down, People might go ahead and try and just sell their stocks or tell an advisor to sell their stocks because they're worried that it, it's always going to go down. But what we should have let that client know in the first place is that market corrections are normal. Normal. They happen. Build a bridge. Get over it. It's not the <laughs> end of the world. It won't ever be. It sucks when you go through it. I believe that market corrections are like clear air turbulence when you're on a plane. Like that never feels good. And you can't wait for that thing to get back on the ground. The plane won't crash and burn unless you jump out at 35,000 feet. But the pilot's probably pretty good and the plane will probably make it through the storm. And that, if you can get that message through to people, it will prevent them from making irrational decisions during periods of time when logically we know that the stock market would be down. So what would you say, because some of our audience their, their portfolios may be down 10% right now. Are you saying that they should just hang tight, grin and bear it, see it through? 100% no. <laughs> okay, I'll try it one more time. There is no one-stop shopping. I might tell one person to be patient and, and remain in their portfolio, and I might tell another person that they might, might need to diversify, probably to lower risk. I don't have one-stop shopping. I don't have... I don't have that. If you have a financial advisor that does, then great. I think that everybody should look individually at themselves. What are your goals? And to quantify those goals, not just what are you saving money for, but how much risk do you want to take to get to that point? Because we're not hearing a lot about cryptocurrency right now, are we? (laughs) So what I'm saying to you is that how much risk do you want to take to get from where you are to where you want to go? So you need to look at those companies that you that you're comfortable owning, that you feel that you can be not have the need to sell when the market is down. And to the extent that people are saying, well, should I should I stay put? No, you should reanalyze your goals and look at your portfolio and see if your investments are consistent with your goals. If you say that you're a moderate risk investor, but 98 percent of your portfolio is in the stock market then it's likely you're not moderate risk. It's likely you're aggressive. So you need to match your investment with your goal. That's why it's not one-stop shopping. With some people, we might say, hey, stay put. And other people, we might say, hey, might be a good time to invest more money. And others, we might say, you know what? Uh, Maybe we should uh, lower the risk. Sure. Great advice. For anyone who's just joined us, we're chatting with Jesse Blount III, Senior Vice President and Wealth Advisor at Morgan Stanley. And Jesse's talking to us about the psychology of money. So if any of you would like to ask a question, you can let me know by hitting the button in the bottom right of the the screen. And you can jump up on stage and ask your question directly. 
So, Jesse, earlier you mentioned people who've inherited money or um, people who are self-made. Thinking about risk, do you notice a difference in, in attitude to money between the two types of people? Between people that are self-made and people that inherit money? Those who have inherited their wealth. Yes. I think the people that are self-made, a higher percentage of those people are moderately conservative with what they have because they work so hard to get it. And my observation often has been when people inherit money, they didn't know how hard it was for them to get it in the first place. So they tend to spend it a lot faster than the people that gave it to them. And oftentimes, but not always, but oftentimes, uh, they don't have the same work ethic as the person that gave it to them. Because in some cases, they just know, as long as I outlive my parents, I'm going to be rich. And they're not wrong, but ethically, maybe you would think that financially, economically. So there are differences. There's not a right or a wrong. If you're born into the right household, you can't be faulted for that. It's not your fault that your parents are really rich. But people that work to become self-made tend to be more moderate conservative. And they're probably maybe less spenders and more savers. Where when you inherit money, you might be more of a saver. I mean, more of a spender. Uh, personality trait. So speaking about outliving uh, parents, uh, speaking about inheritance and estate planning, that's an uncomfortable conversation. How would you advise our audience go about having these conversations given the tax implications that could arise? Well, there are bigger implications that can arise um, if you don't, if you're talking about estate planning and trust, if you're talking about your parents, right? If plural, and if they don't have an estate plan, okay, it's very rare that when both parents die at the exact same time, car accident, plane crash, bus crash, something like that. But that's not often. More often than not, one family member outlives the other. It's on the second death that if you don't have a plan in writing, a trust, a will, if you don't have that, then you've got family members that can fight with each other. And nobody wants to have that happen. And the other part of that, even though you don't want to have this conversation, but I think a good way to have that conversation with your parents is, hey, I don't want to get into your business. Can I ask you a question? And usually they'll say yes. And it's, well, you know what? If anything happens to you, do you guys have an estate plan? Do you have a trust? I don't care what's in it. I'm just trying to avoid any potential conflict that might happen between me and my siblings. How did you do your estate plan? You might say that. Hey, you know what? I'm, I'm working on my estate plan. Can I ask you, do you guys have a will or a trust? How did you set yours up? Those sort of non-invasive questions can get people to open up about pretty sensitive stuff. It's not so much that you need to know what's in the trust, but you sure don't want to fight with your brothers and sisters to help manage. And by the way, before the second person generally passes away in this scenario, they might need help if they're elderly from one of the kids, from one of their offspring, one of their children. Oftentimes, for example, I am the successor trustee for my mom's trust. So my mom is 89. Okay. She can't do her banking and she lovingly doesn't remember if she took all of her medicine. So she's, you know, in any given day. So we have her in a safe place and then we know that she's taking her medicine and I'm doing her banking and interacting with her doctor. I'm able to take care of her before she passes. So if you have a good relationship with your parent, you need certain documents to be able to do that. Those are called financial power of attorney and, and medical power of attorney. The reason why this is all important about this conversation today, because the psychology of money, if you ever have to step up to take care of your parents, that can be extremely depressing, especially if they have a degenerative disease, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's. Lou Gehrig's. So the psychology of investing says, hey, you know what? Make sure that you're taken care of before said event happens. If you have someone that's been there for 37 years and they tell you, you know what? Nobody lives forever. You should have an estate plan or a trust. You should have an estate plan or a trust for your family, or at least know what it is. You should have a financial plan for yourself. That's not asking you to buy anything. That's just common sense. And if you do those things, then when the markets are volatile as they are right now, you would have less anxiety. You would be more comfortable, even though times get tough, you're built for this. Thanks for that, Jesse. 
what would you advise our audience do if they are trying to have such conversations with parents or with a partner or whoever it may be, and the other person is not receptive? In a way, that's blocking our audience's own financial health. How would you advise? Well, I think that the only person that you can, that you're responsible for is yourself, right? And I would make sure that if you are involved with anybody that is in any way trying to prevent you from being successful, you need to reevaluate how close you want to have that person, especially to your finances. That type of personality trait could be counterproductive to you being successful, especially if it means that there's a joint account or if you live in a state where it requires spousal consent, for example, in a 401k. So you would need to reevaluate, you know, how you want to take care of yourself, because if somebody is trying to block what you're trying to do to help yourself, I don't think it's unclear what your best play is here, right? You need Mm -hmm. to separate yourself from somebody who's meaning harm to you. It's very expensive to retire. When we talk about the psychology of investing, I hate to say this, but one of the things that anxiety does is it makes people steal from other people. And it can be somebody stealing from their mother who's retired that doesn't read her statements very much. It could be a spouse. It could be a mother-in-law, step-parent, something like this. So there's no shortage of bad people out there. And you should not make yourself an easy target because the psychology and anxiety will cause people, well, I didn't save enough money, but you did. So I'm going to get into your account. And so if somebody is trying to prevent you from getting from where you are to where you need to be, you need to strongly reevaluate their relationship with you and your money. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Jesse, we've had a great question from Jennifer. She says, you mentioned that fear drives poor financial decisions. She's wondering if you have any other advice outside of reevaluating goals and how they can push through that fear and not panic sell during market downturns. Absolutely. And thank you for the question. Many, many times we keep on talking about a financial plan. It doesn't have to be with Morgan Stanley, but if you had one, people that have a financial plan and stick to it tend to have much better results and they have much more peace of mind. And in that financial plan, you would have your asset allocation strategy. And that's a function of how much risk you're comfortable taking. And so if you knew that your money was invested consistently with the amount of risk that you're taking, it would also take into consideration your time horizon. When are you realistically planning on spending that money? And if you align all of those things, your goals, the investments, and your time horizon, you won't be worried about the market being down. Quick example, if you're in your 80s or 90s and you have 20% of your money in stock and 80% of your money in bonds, you're not going to worry about the market because your risk exposure is very low depending on the types of bonds that you have. But if you're 20 years old and or 30 and you have 80% of your money in the stock market and 20% in bonds, which is an aggressive allocation, that shouldn't bother you either, especially when the stock market is down. Because now is the time you want to buy into a down market, in a corrective market. If you have a long-term time horizon, and that's important, your time horizon, how long are you going to leave this money alone? But if you're going to leave it alone for three, five, 10 years, you'll have a hard time finding a better point to invest your money than when there has been a full-blown correction in both the Dow and the NASDAQ. You can look back historically when we've seen said corrections, and guess what? The stock market is higher now than it was then. Jesse, can I just say, I love your energy. If we weren't on other sides of the ponds, I would want you as my financial advisor. (laughs) You make me feel like this is okay, you know? Um, Okay, we've got another request to come up on stage. Ali, do you want to ask your question? Yeah, hi, Jesse. Thank you so much. And I agree with today. Your energy is amazing. Um, Not bad for an old man. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. Is your picture old or something? Because you do not look old. Oh, my gosh. So my question, I mean, I get you on the will situation. I have the opposite 
problem with my parents. They talk to me about their will all the time. And it makes me very uncomfortable because they are relatively young. And I'm like, please stop talking about dying. But I have a question about investments. How do you feel and what do you think about crowdfunding around real estate? You know, all of those individual investment questions are on, you have to look at them in terms on a macro basis. In other words, if somebody had $5,000, would I do that? Probably not. If they had 50, probably not. If I had 500, I might look into it, okay. right? Which gets you back to not having one-stop shopping. And then you have to ask liquidity and you have to ask the risk. Good advice came from my dad before he passed away. And he said, nobody gets out alive. It is a difficult situation. He had given me an envelope and it was plan B. Plan B was if he wasn't alive. So eventually I had to open up the envelope, right? It wasn't fun, but it was a conversation that was necessary. I needed to know what he wanted me to do in that event. Okay. And then the second thing is, is that I just had one of the more difficult appointments in my entire life last week. And I have clients I've managed for, for over 18 years. And she is 52 and he is 54. Last I saw them, it was three years ago before the pandemic. He had now been diagnosed with Parkinson's. So she's 52 and he's 54. It changed their entire life, what they expect to have happen going forward. So what I'm saying to you is that there are no absolutes. Okay, so yeah, there's no one-stop shopping. It's just, you, you really just want to look at everything individually and, and not, there are no investments that are great for everybody. I can tell you that. So I think while you were kind of out, I did say that like if the real estate around your particular area and, you know, is, is booming, would that be a safe investment? If it's In most cases, it is. Absolutely. In most cases, it is. As I said earlier, more likely than not, your real estate will be more expensive next year than it is this year as we were talking about inflation. The other side of that equation is liquidity right? If you sink all of your money in non-illiquid assets and we have a downturn in the economy, then how would you pay your mortgages or your insurance or your um, upkeep, your maintenance? I think that you have to take your liquidity into consideration, but I would agree with you owning real estate is a good investment. I live in Cupertino, California, Santa Clara, California, but my house is about a mile and a half from the Apple computer world headquarters here in Cupertino. So I benefit from the rising in real estate prices personally, but my financial investments have grown at a much faster rate and they provide liquidity. I guess what I mean is as far as crowdfunding, like when crowdfunding goes in, it's a new thing and it's brand new. It's beautiful. I love what it does, but I, I would love your feedback on, you know, when you get into a crowdsourcing where you buy a property as you know, a, a, a group and then sell it for, you know, twice its value and get that money back. I mean, have you, do you have any experience or comments on? I do. And it goes back to the amount of money that you're putting into it. And it goes back to your, your need for liquidity. And if you're having somebody else manage it, what's their quality of management? So as I say, if I were um, a million, I would certainly have no problem peeling off some and going over there because I wouldn't worry so much about losing it. And, and I will tell you this, though. There is a three-letter wherein all financial advisors are different. Okay, I've been here for 36 years. We do a lot of different work at Morgan Stanley in bringing companies public and syndicate offerings and things of this nature. But the three-letter word that always concerns me is new, N-E-W, new. This is a new investment. This is an IPO. This is something. Because I manage a lot of money for our clients. And if I lose money for them trying to knock it out of the park, I wouldn't have any customers. I'm better off, and I think most people are, trying to set up and hit singles and doubles and get on base, get hit by a pitch. Catcher's interference, just get on base. But when we lose money for our clients in an illiquid investment, that's how financial advisors get fired. So I would just say regarding any investment that you are putting your money into, you have to take into consideration your personal liquidity needs and how bad would you, how quickly can you get your money out of an investment 
if you really need it? Thank you so much for your question. So last 10 minutes then, thinking back to psychology of money, what last tips do you have for people to improve their relationship with money? What I'm realizing and hearing now from people because of the downturn in the markets and the economy are people that want to make long-term changes to their portfolio for short-term gyrations in the market. And by that, I mean, two years ago, when the coronavirus pandemic came out, you would listen, I would listen to people saying, this is the end of the world. There's never been a, a virus like this. There will never be a way to get over it. Doomsday is here. Everyone's going to get it. And everything that came along with it, right? But two years later, there's vaccine therapeutics, right? And not as many deaths from hospitalization. So it wasn't as bad as everybody made it out to be, is what I'm saying. And I think that people out of fear tend to make irrational decisions when it comes to their investing. And in order to combat that, having a plan is a good idea. And then the other thing is, is to really make sure that you identify your time horizon. If I'm saving money for 20 years, 15, 10 years before I'm retiring, I'm going to be pretty aggressive. I want my money to grow. That's just me. It doesn't do me any good in bonds. And I don't care if the market's down because I'm buying in when the market is down. By definition, I'm doing that. On the other side of the equation, if I invest according to my goals and the market's way down, I probably won't have a lot of money in, in the market if I'm conservative, if I'm worried about things. So I leave things into cash. I leave them liquid in short-term bonds where we don't have exposure to the stock market. So when we talk about the psychology of money, I think that when people square up their goals with their investments, then they can get through these volatile markets with much less anxiety. And when you have anxiety, if you know what that is, that means you might not be sleeping very well because you're wondering if you can pay your bills. That means that you might not be concentrating on your job at work because you're wondering if you've saved enough money for retirement or if you'll be able to send your son or daughter to the college that you want he or she to go to. Anxiety can happen when you find out at age 52 that your husband at age 54 now has Parkinson's. And how do I pay for that? See, so 36 years working here, I think I've got a pretty good idea of some of the things I'm talking to you about because I've seen them firsthand. And so the people that do not call me when the stock market is down happen to be 99% of my clients because they're not worried about it. We know that from time to time, the market is down and we have our money invested accordingly. But every now and then when people do, when the market does go down, it is good to call a financial advisor, a professional and get some guidance and take good advice and be patient. You'll be okay. We'll get through this. I said this two years ago too. We'll get through this. We will. And the markets will get back to equilibrium. Gas prices will work their way back down eventually. And then we'll go back to the business of earnings and, and interest rate and the more conventional things that are driving the markets. We'll be fine. All of us together will be just fine. And like you said, Jesse, you've been doing this for nearly 37 years. So you've obviously seen a fair few market corrections in your time. So it's reassuring to, to hear you say that. I'm sure the audience will agree. And we've got another question. I think you're going to love this one. Somebody asks, since we can't predict when the market will bottom, would you recommend buying a little bit at a time as the market goes down? Their concern is because the market went up a lot last year and the market is still down now, it's substantially higher than pre-COVID, so there could be a lot more room for it to fall. So what I can tell you is this. The answer to your question depends on what your goals are. If your goal is to save money for a large expense, perhaps down payment to a house or college education or a car, then it really doesn't matter what the stock market is doing because you have to save money one way or another. If the market was up, you'd still be saving it. You would just be buying more when the market was at a higher price. If I'm saving my money, I don't have any problem buying when the market is down, especially if I have a long-term time horizon. That's key. If you're planning on spending your money in less than a year, then the answer is no. You wouldn't be investing in stocks. Let me make sure we're clear. 
If we're going to spend that money in a year, we would not invest in stocks. But if you give me a year and a half to five, 10 years, the right funds, the right investments, absolutely. That makes because you're buying right now in the middle of a correction. Just have to be patient. It's hard, but it's the right thing to do economically. That's where you'll see your best chance of success. So I think perhaps this person's referring to trying to time the market or potentially uh, pound cost, dollar cost averaging. What do you think on that in a, in a down market? So Jade and Rachel have the slide from my last presentation, which is the fundamentals of investing. And very clearly it states, I believe it's on page 14, I just looked at it today, that market timing is a flawed and costly strategy. I just tried to say that it doesn't matter. If you're trying to save for a goal, you just keep saving for it. Otherwise, you wouldn't be putting money in. And if you're only going to wait for when the market is up instead of the market is down, then you'd be buying it's the exact opposite of what you're trying to do. The reason why people that have 401k succeed over the years precisely because they continue investing in most cases. You get paid, the money comes out of your check, stock market's been down for six months. The last six months, you've been buying when the market's been down. That's good. And as long as the market is up, when you get ready to sell, that's even better. This whole issue of trying to, well, the market is down because of this reason and the market's going to be up, that's all speculation. What do we know? We know that the market goes up and down. That's what we do know. We know that we're trying to save money for a specific goal, education, retirement, just in case somebody in my family gets sick. If I have to miss work, did I save enough money on the side where I can take care of a family member, be it a parent or an immediate loved one? The psychology isn't trying to time the market. The psychology is trying to save enough money to meet your goal. And yes, that might mean you're buying in when the market is high. But right now we're looking at buying in when the markets are low. What a great opportunity. Yeah, what a great way to reframe it as well. I know a lot of people, like you said earlier, panic when, when the markets are low and make knee-jerk decisions. Speaking of which, what, what advice do you have for people like myself? I'm going to cheekily take this opportunity whilst we have you here to ask my question, which is, I'm an emotional spender. I'm sure a lot of us are. If I am happy, I'll spend. If I'm sad, I'll buy something. What do you have? Uh, what advice do you have for people like myself? It's a three-letter answer. It's pretty simple. It's you be you. All you need to do is budget for it, right? I mean, let's call it for what it is. If you're going to spend money, there's nothing wrong with that. There's no crime against it. If it makes you feel good, as long as you're within your budget, right? You'd like to have a budget between nine and 12 months. If you'd like to have a monthly savings planner, that's inside the guide to life and money. Rachel and Jade have. You make a budget and you put spending in there for your whatever, happy spending or not happy spending. As long as you're budgeting for it, that's okay. You see, there's no advisor that can tell you how to spend your money. What you should do is tell the advisor how you want to spend your money and we should help you accomplish that goal. And that might mean saving over here or getting a better asset allocation over there. It might be going tax-free. There's any number of ways we can perhaps tighten up the ship. But if you want to spend, you know, as long as it's within reasonable limits, you should. I believe in the DIN strategy, which is do it now. And that means, you know, live your life so that you say, I'm glad I did instead of I wish I would have. Thanks, Jesse. You've totally enabled me there. So uh, <laughs> I'm happy with that response. Um, Within limits. <laughs> uh, before we wrap up, last time uh, we had you, you mentioned a really great book. The name evades me, uh, but I think an audience may be interested in it. Could you remind me what that was called? It was about the women who invested as a, as a group. Yes. Okay. So one of my favorite aspects of my job is I'm the broker of record for an investment club. And it's a group of women that meet bi-monthly and they invest their money and they come in and they talk about their investments and they, they, they each save a certain amount of money. They put it into their account for their investment club and they um, do research on companies and then they invest in those companies. They um, have modeled themselves after a book, which is called the Beardstown's Ladies Investment Club. 
Beardstown's Lady Investment Club. And that investment club is out of Illinois, and they're extremely successful. I mean, they are really spot on. And some of the common sense things that they invest in make a lot of sense. For example, they only invest in companies that they're comfortable doing business with. In this case, they don't like to use certain companies in alcohol and tobacco. So they choose what companies they're interested in, and then they've come up with a template on their stock selection. And it really is a great book to read for a fundamentally wise way to invest money, either for yourself or if you have a group of people, say everybody wants to put in a couple hundred bucks every other month, that can build up. And then every three months, perhaps, or every four months, then you make a stock selection. So the name of the book, again, is The Beardstown's Lady's Guide to Investment. Beard, B-E-A-R-D-F-T-O-W-N, ladies, and just Google it, Investment Club or Investment Guide. That is phenomenal. Awesome. Thanks, Jesse. And if anyone is interested in the resources Jesse has referenced throughout the live, do send a DM to either myself or Rachel and we'll get those sent out to you tomorrow or the next couple of days. And Jesse, if, if people want to reach out for you for tailored financial advice, where can they reach you? Well, my email address is jesse with no I, J-E-S-S-E dot blount, B-L-O-U-N-T at morganstanley.com. There are no fees for my consultation. I speak to my clients complimentary for free. I really do enjoy the financial literacy and educational part of my job. I had a conversation today with a, a young man. He's 15 years old and his parents started his account. And uh, he was thought we were talking about the investments in his account. And I, I said to him very clearly, I said, you know, you know the reason why I've worked here for more than 36 years? And he said, why? And I told him because I would not be able to have this conversation with you if I didn't work here. This is exactly what makes my motor run. And I am so happy to help people who haven't gotten started or don't think that they can do it because you can. And all you need is the right motivation, some good advice. And so whether it's for me or any other financial advisor, if you get good advice, you should take it. And if there's anything I can do for you, you can send me an email, jesse.blount at morganstanley.com. Jade and Rachel, they have my phone numbers. I'm just really careful to not sound like I'm selling anything. And I don't want you to think that I have. I didn't want you to think that I was telling you to buy or sell anything. But hopefully you got an idea of some of the uh, smart investments that are out there. That's awesome. And I think that's a great note to end on. So Jesse, thank you again for your time. We really love having you uh, to chat with our audience. And thank you guys for joining as well. I hope you all have a great evening. And again, if there's anything Jesse can help you with, feel free to reach out. And do reach out to myself and Rachel for all of the documents that we mentioned. Have a good night. That's all, folks. Thanks again for listening to Hardly Working. Join us live next time and talk directly to the speakers and who knows, end up here. Fishbowl is a social network where professionals of the same industry have anonymous career conversations. You can download Fishbowl on the App Store or Google Play. If you want to host a Fishbowl live event, get in touch at live at fishbowlapp.com. See you soon.